0: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast, with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Today we have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Tony Gomes. Dr. Gomes is an extremely busy community general surgeon working in Lethbridge, Alberta. He completed surgical residency at the University of Alberta and then went on to complete a fellowship in surgical endoscopy at the University of Alberta. He was then recruited to Lethbridge and has been there for over 20 years. Dr. Gomes has been heavily supportive of the Canadian Association of General Surgeons over the years with varying degrees of involvement at multiple levels. Dr. Gomes, thanks again for agreeing to be on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, it's a big honor to have you on the show. Um, and let's just dive right in. And I love the two papers uh, that we were, wanted to highlight for specifically for you because I think those two papers are very representative of you as a surgeon and in, in your career. Uh, the two very interesting publications that you have in CJS. Uh, one of which was about minimally invasive surgery and setting standards for minimally invasive surgery. Um, What prompted the genesis of that committee to set those standards? And can you tell us a little bit about this paper and what prompted it and what were your recommendations?
2: You know, I think uh, it was a very interesting time in general surgery. I mean, for many years, all we really needed was a knife and sutures and we could carry on and we were really in the early adoptive years of more advanced minimally invasive surgery. And the early adopted early adopters had figured out how to do the advanced stuff, but most of us were still doing, you know, gallbladders and a few hernias and appendixes, but we really didn't know how to learn how to do the advanced stuff. So this was a consensus meeting and as usual I was one of the uh, token community surgeons invited along. Um, and it was just an attempt to try and find a systematic way to teach, in this case, mainly laparoscopic colon surgery. Um, so, yeah, I think it was that was what really prompted it, and that was my interest in it. Um, I think that, uh, you know. The, did you want me to talk about the recommendations of it or
1: Sure, yeah, yeah that would process? That, I found it, the 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 recommendations really interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that the it was good to have a formative approach to this problem as a model for the future because surgery is changing so much and I think everyone who comes into surgery now can expect to have to adopt a new technique, which may be quite unfamiliar. Um, And I think the, the basic sort of general recommendations were around, from my point of view, the importance of mentoring, because a lot of us, myself included, were trying to learn advanced laparoscopic surgery simply by degree and learning maybe hand-assisted, doing some of it laparoscopically, and gradually moving into it with varying success. And, you know, it's just like being a resident. It's very hard to make progress if the person teaching you doesn't know much more than you. So we all felt that mentoring would be a really important way to make this more systematic. We also, it was one of the First, sort of techniques where it became very clear that the whole team was really important because anesthesia had to make modifications, nursing had to make modifications, and even sort of the technical parts of it with monitors and uh, the actual quality of the video and all those other things really matter quite a bit. So. The concept of the team trying to learn not just the surgeon was really important. And then as you took on these new processes, the other thing that we felt was important was to be able to audit just for yourself to be sure that what you were doing was showing some semblance of being similar in terms of complications and outcomes to you know, established norms in the literature. Um, so that was that was my interest and in sort of the recommendations of that paper.
0: That's great, I think it, yeah. yeah. You know, I was, I was curious, we're, we're sort of a decade out just over from that. How, how close did we get, to really, in, in practice to what you guys had envisioned? And I would probably make the argument that certainly scheduled or elective colorectal surgery is, is dominantly laparoscopic now. So I, I think from the outside, it seems to have worked. Uh, what's your sense of that?
2: I think actually that the framework is really useful, but the where the whole process fell down was that the mentoring needed some sort of um, formal structure, and in fact, mentors needed a way to be reimbursed for what they did if they traveled and did teaching. And, and it, I think it, it fell apart at that point but in fact, we've moved forward beyond it um, because the bulk of surgeons then were untrained and we're 10, 15 years ahead now. And the new people coming into the field have the training and it's been disseminated. I know my partners and my young partners coming in have taught me a lot about this. And we often do cases together, especially if they're bigger, minimally invasive cases. So In some sense, it's been superseded, Um, but that doesn't mean it's not useful. I think it serves as a bit of a template for uh, technology and technique adoption in the future. What we're missing is buy-in from organizations like our health services to to understand that, that we need a formal approach to doing this. So I think it was a first stab at technology adoption. But we worked hard and we had some uh, success getting some funding from industry, but it really wasn't enough to set up a a regular program. And so most of the mentorship was kind of on and off. Um, So I don't think it was a failure, but maybe not as much of a success in, in execution as in what we sort of... Perceived or envisioned as a structure.
0: That's really interesting. When when you look at some of the the cancer work that's gone on across the country, um, I I do wonder if it's almost analogous. If you look at cancer care Ontario, for example, and almost a top down approach in terms of um, re- whether it's reimbursement for a given oncologic procedure or a, st- a strict you know go or no go uh, institution based or hospital based. Checklist: whether you can do Operation X or Y versus an Alberta approach, which has been, at least recently, and I I know you were involved in this, for example, rectal cancer, just feeding back outcomes uh, and looking at your performance compared to your peers. So sort of a top-down versus a bottom-up approach. Um, What do you think about that, whether it's oncologic care or whether it's technical advancement, Which one do you think works better and and how do you see that going forward?
2: I think that, so we looked at the issue of certification and how that would work. Um, And it's a very hard thing to quantify and measure. Um, And, and we had, you know, a legal opinion as well. And we tended to, to shy away from the idea of certification. I mean, We're all general surgeons. I think that we understand the aims of what we're trying to do and we have good skills. It's my feeling that if we use a more of a bottom-up approach and feedback outcomes to physicians, the ones who are truly interested are going to work to obtain those outcomes, whether it means going away to learn some more or changing their practice. And the ones who really aren't interested in it or don't feel that they want to put in that time are not going to do it. And I'm not sure that it should be institution-based. I think that it's more important to have, you know, you don't need to be necessarily fellowship trained, but if you have one or two people in a community center who do higher volumes of it and have some interest in that, they can achieve the same excellent results as in a larger center. So I think it's quite, I think it's, It's a dangerous road for us to go down as general surgeons to start to be certified for all the procedures we do. It's important, I think, that we don't start creating different classes of general surgeons.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Americans have also really started to go down that route of making everything very, you know, center of excellence. But that really doesn't work for Canada where, you know, it's a distributed a very spread-out country, um, and where you need general surgeons who really can service the needs of their communities that they live in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should give surgeons a chance to achieve those outcomes. I mean, we're measuring everything now, and if it's clear it can't be done, then obviously some things need to be changed. But I think, you know, a good general surgeon is going to understand what their capabilities are.
0: So one of the other paper you were on uh, that was really interesting to all of us uh, at CJS for sure was the the Kegs based paper on a blueprint for professionalism. Um, and as you as you know, we've done sessions on professionalism a couple times at the Canadian surgery Forum, and it's certainly a passion of a lot of ours. Um, how do you think we've been doing since you guys wrote that paper over the over the number of uh, past few years?
2: Well I think we've I mean that paper was just uh, and I have to say, once again, I was a member of the group. I certainly didn't write the paper. Dr. Bond sort of pulled everything together. So I'm speaking as a member of the group that was involved with that. But I think this was the first stab at trying, again, to sort of put together a definition of professionalism and to just enunciate the components of it. Um it was it. It's quite general, and I think it's a, It's kind of an easy read, um, but I think it was quite prescient because it's it's, you know, over 10 years old now, and since that time, we are now being. A lot of the concepts in there are being formalized, and our regulatory bodies are taking those concepts on and sort of testing us, giving us modules and giving us direction on various components of that, so boundary issues, all those sorts of things that, that uh, are problems within the profession of medicine. So I think this was a, a really good thing for us to think about as general surgeons. It was very general, um, but it, it was a few years ahead of its time because we're now being legislated to do those exact things.
1: What do you think the challenges are um, for professionalism going forward?
2: I think that um, the biggest challenge is maintaining appropriate contact with patients and some connection with them without it intruding upon your own personal life. That's one of the challenges. Um, I think because we need to maintain contact with our patients, but it, it can intrude into our daily lives. And the work-life balance is so important that we have to find a way to disconnect ourselves, even though we may feel uneasy about not being involved in our patients' care or communicating with them at certain times. Um, the boundary issues are an, an issue. The communication issues are an issue because we have so much less confidentiality now, but we are expected to be more communicative in many different forms. So whether it's email or texting and all of those things are scrutinized by our health services and our regulators. Um, so it's a, it's a, Challenge to be appropriately professional, not intrude on your own life, and not step on anyone else's toes, uh, and not let information out that shouldn't be out. Um, but I think the the basics of it, of professionalism, really remain the same. It's just that the challenges to it keep coming up as we, you know, move through our world of easy accessibility and sort of universal work uh, where we're contacted even when we're on holidays as long as we have our cell phones.
1: What do you think would be the definition of professionalism in 2019 for trainees and faculty for surgery?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm glad you sent me some of these questions because that's really difficult. I mean, I think we all know someone who's professional when we see them and work with them Um, and we all have varying degrees of professionalism in the different components of it and I think the components of professionalism are primarily things like altruism towards others honesty impartiality uh, being accountable for your actions collegiality with partners, colleagues, and co-workers, and finding some balance in your life. But I can't enunciate a true definition beyond saying that those are all components of it. It's one of those things, it's, it's like, you know, I know it when I see it, but to actually tell someone, you know, I, I can tell when they're not being professional, and I can tell when they're acting very professional, but I don't think it's an easy thing to define because there are many components to it.
0: Yeah, and the the definition I, I would argue some of the components are, are stable, but the definition changes over time as well. There's no doubt, uh, Tony. If we if we switch gears a little bit and ask you a little bit about you, would be great. Um, we're curious what, what drove your initial interest in surgery uh, when you were just get getting going. I think that. Um,
2: you know, when I started in medicine, I actually, it was my first clinical rotation, and I actually couldn't believe how hard uh, general surgeons worked. And I, I was living with a friend whose father was a general surgeon, and I thought it was some sort of craziness. So I think, though, that once you're in it, it is quite all-consuming, and what attracted me were really the technical aspects. and you know, for me, the gratification and the fairly relatively instant gratification of seeing success or failure was really what made me most most interested in surgery. And you could, you know, do everything right and things didn't work right. So there were a lot of things you could control, but in many cases, you weren't fully in control of, of, you know, the patient physiology and all the rest of it. So... I think that's what drew me to it, and I really couldn't see myself doing anything else in medicine.
0: Oh, that—that's interesting. <laughs> Your initial thought were thoughts were uh, that's crazy, and then then uh, you got sucked in. Was there a particular surgeon or a group of surgeons, either in Edmonton or elsewhere, that that really uh, played a big part in pulling you into it?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that first rotation was with Walter Yakimets in Edmonton, right. and. Um, he was a quintessential general surgeon. He ran the fellowship program. He was chief examiner for many years, and he really, you know, clearly loved what he did. And he was a great teacher. And I think there's no doubt. I think every one of us can point to one person or two people who sort of sucked us into the into the into the profession of surgery. And um, yeah, I think that was for sure, you know the reason, he was probably the reason that I couldn't think of doing anything different.
1: Were you always interested in doing uh, community surgery right out the gate, uh, Dr. Gorms?
2: Um Yeah, I actually looked at, you know, I wondered if I could be a GP surgeon, but the more I did surgery, the more I realized how little I knew, and I really felt I needed a, a very general training, and I did a year in my training of orthopedics and urology, planning to go to a small community and uh, was sort of set up to do that, but uh, circumstances changed, and the support for a single general surgeon in the small community can fall out from under them. If your anesthesiology colleagues leave town, um, so I, I really wanted to work in a stable environment. So that's how I ended up in Lethbridge because there were already three surgeons there.
0: For for those listeners that, that don't know, uh, you know, and and it is in the preamble, but Dr. Gomes works in a very, very busy, very busy um, community hospital in Lethbridge. So uh, I guess my, my next question, uh, Tony, would be oh, over the years in that environment, how has working in that um, that scenario, that setting changed over your career?
2: You know, the biggest changes have been, I guess, if I want to be unhappy, I would say the biggest changes have been the changes in healthcare administration. But from a more sort of personal point of view, the, the practice has grown busier but we've been able to recruit a lot more young people so we actually do less call the spectrum of patients that we now operate on and the average age of patients that we look after and actually get you know get better from surgery is far and away different than it was in the 90s like patients that we would not have attempted to deal with then we deal with routinely now and we get them through their operations. And I don't know if that's, it's partly a testament to surgery, but largely a testament to pre- and post-operative care. We do much more group-based work now since we have an acute care group. Um, And we do so much more of our work as short stay and day surgery, partly because we do so much of the work laparoscopically. So those are the biggest sort of changes um, I think in some ways we're less efficient because our, what we do takes longer, um, and the days of sort of running through seven or eight cases in the operating room seem to have gone by. It's more like four or five, um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just how things have changed.
0: It's interesting you bring up you know acute care surgery as a service. We we talked to Morad at Hamida at length, not only about his passion for. ACS or emergency general surgery, but also on process and structure and change over time. How has your ACS changed, you know, your guys' practice specifically, and has it actually changed over the years you guys have been doing it?
2: Um, we started
0: doing acute care in about 2013,
2: um, and we envisioned it as a way just to provide better call coverage without destroying your elective days uh, afterwards. Our program has changed uh, in the sense that we have been able to internalize all of it. At first, we had a lot of locum coverage helping us, um, and we've evolved in terms of uh, trying to be more systematic about when we take the patients off the acute care service. Um, because there are a certain group of patients that are well looked after on an acute care service. And there's a certain group of patients that require kind of ongoing continuity. And so we've been quite careful about making sure that patients who spend longer in hospital have some continuity with one surgeon. Because they often get lost in the shuffle. They're not quite as acute as some of the active patients. And they get, I think they get left behind. Um, but, I, you know, our acute care group has been a lifesaver for our program. Our younger surgeons really uh, feel like they could not carry on with call and then working a full day after call. Um, and at this point, I don't think any of us would go back to what we did before. Our lifestyle is much better. Um, And I think in a lot of ways our patient care is better because there are no competing uh, issues when you need to take someone to the operating room. You're not worried about leaving the office. You're not worried about leaving your endoscopy day. You're just there to take care of the patient.
1: This sort of builds uh, on a talk that you gave us um, to the general surgery residents in Calgary. It was a phenomenal talk on surgical satisfaction, um, and in this talk, you talk a, a lot about acute care sur- surgery and how that's improved our lives in the way in the ways that you described. You also talk about some of the potential maybe downsides or limitations or things that you think maybe. Take away from our surgical satisfaction. Can you, just for the sake of our listeners, recap uh, a little bit of that talk and maybe highlight some of the things that you were worried about that you talked about in that uh, t- talk that you gave to us?
2: I think that um, you know, as we get further in our careers, we think a bit more about what's what's our source of satisfaction and. I, I I think that we're at another interesting time in surgery where we're trying to figure out a way to take what is individual responsibility, which was the traditional surgeon, and transfer it to the group, while maintaining satisfaction for every member of that group. And when we think about it, the tr- you know our traditional surgeons they had very long careers and. The reason wasn't that they were financially bereft. The reason is that they really had great satisfaction from their work. And I tried to get an idea of why that was the case. Because the job's hard. The administrative burden is high. The sort of factor of all the things that irritate you about your job is also very high. But what really makes you keep doing it? And I came to the conclusion that really what makes you satisfied in your job is the outcomes. It's, it's how your patients do. And if we deprive ourselves of knowing those outcomes, we're likely to be unhappy. And I hate to pick on the emergency positions, but I likened it a little bit to that because they have episodic care They don't get much follow-up of their successes or failures, and they have a very high burnout rate. There aren't many 65, 70-year-old emergency doctors. There are quite a few 65-year-old general surgeons. So my concern with acute care surgery is just that our episodic care may detach us from the ability to feel good when we see a great patient outcome, and also our ability to really learn from the negative outcomes, because in the end, bad experiences are a huge driver of change in surgical care, I think. There are things that your mentors have taught you and things that we read in all the old surgical books, those didn't come from controlled trials. They came largely from bad experiences and sequential modification to make those experiences go away and have better outcomes. So my sort of take home from that is that you really need to have a skin in the game. You have to, when you make a decision about a patient in the operating room or to operate on them, you have to follow them. And if you don't, as a surgeon, it's going to be as much your loss as the patient's. You need to follow your patients. You need to see them maybe as much as they need to see you because that gives you either the satisfaction or sometimes the heartbreak, but it does allow you to improve your practice. And most of our patients do well. There's nothing better than seeing a satisfied patient with a great outcome.
0: Tony, I think most of our trainees, you know, sort of on average would have. Um, a a very uh, receptive and optimistic view of, of that concept, which, you know, of course I agree with entirely, but how do you reconcile that with the era of um, to some extent millennial outlook, but also more importantly, probably more directly workout restrictions, um, which, you know, again, from my point of view are, are, Good things and, and totally reasonable and probably where our collective needs to go. But you know the point you bring up is so critical and so important to our evolution and our satisfaction and our training. How do you how do you integrate those two concepts?
2: Yeah, and I think that's the real difficulty is is to feel bad about how things go doesn't mean you have to be there at that time. So that certainly makes you feel worse if you're watching the the actual complication happen or having to deal with it. But the challenge is actually to transfer that individual responsibility to the group, to the acute care group, or to communicate to them reasonably temporally in time that this has happened to your patient. Um, It is important to find some way to transfer that personal responsibility, whether the group gives it to you or you sit down once a week and you go through things. It's very powerful to sit around with your colleagues and listen to the story of your own misfortunes with patients. Um, that is a really great way to uh, help people reflect and make changes. And and with your colleagues around it allows for some back and forth about was this the right decision, were there other decisions that could have been made, and how how has it been managed now. So I don't think that it's an absolute. We just have to find a way to transfer that responsibility to that person and make them make it impactful upon them when they are back at work. It's not the intent to make everyone feel bad 24 hours a day even when they're home, but you need to reflect on these things, whether it's at home or otherwise. And so there has to be a way for you to know. When your patient does poorly and you're gone and you don't know, when you come back or when your group does rounds, it must be made clear what happened with each of those patients.
1: When I was down in Lethbridge, you told me this uh, story that when you used to get back home, on friday afternoons you would your children would know that you were going to go mow the lawn and that was your time to kind of decompress and kind of work through that that whole sort of series of emotions that you know that you build up from having to carry that low really that big emotional responsibility um do you what other advice do you have any other advice besides mowing the lawn on friday afternoons that you have for for surgical <laughs> trainees like me and uh, people who are going forward their career, trying to balance this real desire to be professional and to really uh, be there with our patients, but as well as have a really fulfilling, uh, well-rounded life, which which I know that you you at least on this the surface seem to have.
0: Yeah, I mean,
2: I think maybe my biggest mistake was not insisting that my kids mow the lawn. But, um, you know, I have to say I still haven't figured it out. I don't think any of us really has perfect balance, and it changes. It's a moving target during your life because the demands on you from work and at home and all the other spheres in your life change as time goes on. So it's it's difficult. But, um, I mean, I think that there are a few things that I think are important. Um, one is when you start in practice. I think it's important to work hard for the first few years to gain confidence, technical skills, and really solidify your practice. Um, it's, I think that's hard to do if you're not working regularly. I think that when you go away, you need to have a have a you need to find a way to detach yourself. And that's why it's so important to have supportive colleagues. Um, I think that the same thing with the support, if you have supportive colleagues, you need to use them. You need to learn from them and lean on them, especially some of your older colleagues, because they have often seen things and they may even just be there to tell you you're doing the right thing even though things aren't going well. And another thing that I think that helps you in your professional life is you must find something in your work that you can pursue with a bit of passion that's different than your every colleague beside you. You can pick an area of surgery. You can be a researcher. You can do surgical education. You can start working and doing some administrative work. But those to be a little bit of an expert in one area is very refreshing. And it, it gives you some expertise because when you're a general surgeon, you feel like you're a little bit weak everywhere. So it's nice to have one area that you really feel confident about. And that doesn't mean you have to do a fellowship. It just means that you're more interested in that. Um, I think it's important to relish in your successes because there's plenty of those. Most of us have lots of good outcomes. And I mean, I might sound old, but it goes really, I'm not finished yet, but it goes by in a flash. So I think, you know, like Ferris Bueller said, life moves pretty fast sometimes. You better stop and look around once in a while or you'll miss it.
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at canjsurge. Thanks again.